What's up, legends? This episode of the podcast was created in memory of Eb Glockner. In April 1989, Ebby sat down with a video camera and gave his own very detailed account of his family's arrival in the U.S., the very early days of the business, Glockner Hardware, Glockner Chevrolet, and shares his own personal experiences and thoughts on his family's continued multi-generational success. You may have heard many people talk about how they want to go on record before they pass to share about their life experiences, but I believe Eb Glockner actually did it because he really knew how great of an impact it would have on the generations of family and friends he had stewarded this business for. So what you're about to hear is Eb Glockner's own personal testimony of his family's great American love story that after 170 years has only shined brighter. And if you'd like to find a specific story or topic that Ed shares here, this whole episode is time-stamped in the description. Enjoy the episode. Bernard Glockner died in 1876. It is recalled that the funeral cortege was the largest ever seen in the city. This is the Local Legends Podcast. My name is Eb Glockner, and uh, this is April the 27th, 1989. And it's my intent to try to put together on a videotape many memories and things remembered that were said about our ancestors who came over from the old country and their children and their children's children. So I have the camera now on the picture of the Glockner family who were born in this country by the father Bernard Glockner and his wife Magdalena Beck Glockner. From left to right is Frank Glockner, Adolf Glockner, Louise Glockner, who became Sister Aquin in the, in the uh, Order of St. Francis in Rochester, Minnesota, Bill Glockner, Anna Glockner Meyer, Adolf Glockner, and Charles Glockner. This picture was taken in 1891 at the uh, time of their mother's death. And uh, this was the last time these children were ever together again. They were born and reared in Bingenbaden, Germany, which is about 15 to 20 miles south of Freiburg, near the uh, Black Forest area of Germany. They came to this country with a couple and their daughter, who were also from Bingenbaden, by the name of Stefan Beck and his wife Anna Kind, K-I-N-D, Beck and a daughter Anna. They eventually, uh, after landing in this country, made their way to Cincinnati, Ohio. We do not know why they chose Cincinnati, but knowing that many of the people that were immigrants uh, sought locations where 
friends who had come to this country uh, prior to, to them uh, served as a staging point for them to get their feet on the ground and learn the English language and find their vocation in life. We do not know why, but uh, Bernard Glockner and Leo Glockner came up the river from Cincinnati and settled in Portsmouth, Ohio. We know that uh, they both uh, were salesmen or clerks uh, of one type or another, and I will read you information from the 1960 census. Now you have to remember that's 12 years after they arrived here. Uh, Bernard Glockner in 1960 was 35 years of age. He was a salesman. He was born in Bingen-Baden, Germany. He had a net worth of real estate of $1,500 and personal property of $800. His wife was Magdalena, age 28. She also was born in Bingen-Baden, Germany. At this time they had three children, Francis, age 5, Anna, age 3, and Louise, age 2. His brother Leo Glockner in 1960 was 40 years of age, five years older than Bernard. His occupation was a grocer. He was born in Bingen-Baden, and they, they show that he was a brother to Bernard. And his net worth in real estate was $2,200 and his personal property, $400. His wife was Elizabeth. She was 30 years of age, and she was born in Rheinbein, R-H-E-I-N, capital B-I-E-R-N, Germany. They had four children, Adam, age 11, Louis, age 9, Emma, age 3, and Leo, age six months. As I was told, my grandfather, Bernard, after he was settled in Portsmouth, went back to Cincinnati and asked Stephen and Anna Beck for their daughter Anna's hand in marriage. Anna said that she was already betrothed to a man by the name of Zimmerer, but her sister Magdalena was on her way over from Germany and was not promised to anyone. And uh, so uh, Bernard came on back to Portsmouth and in a couple months he went back to Cincinnati and uh, met Magdalena and asked for her hand in marriage and of course they were married and uh, the seven children that I showed you on the picture uh, a few minutes ago were the offspring of that marriage. Now Bernard Glockner uh, went to work for a fellow by the name, a German by the way, by the name of John Roddinghouse who had a hardware store. And uh, John Roddinghouse sold the hardware store 
two great-grandfather Bernard Glockner and uh, John Rottinghouse went on in to a larger hardware operation with some other investors. Bernard then uh, operated his hardware store on Market Street uh, and uh, he uh, did quite well. He has, uh, I have some write-ups out of the paper that was researched and I'd like to read one of the articles that was taken from the paper as to what they thought of uh, great-grandfather Bernard. This article was uh, taken from the Portsmouth Times and was headed up, Glockner Hardware Company observes its 50th anniversary. It was dated 1927, which would indicate that great-grandfather uh, uh, did not, uh, well I can't say with certainty that you've got to remember this article is written by Glockner Hardware Company. The original Glockner Hardware was named uh, uh, B. Glockner Hardware, just the letter B. When great-grandfather Bernard died in 1876, they changed the name of the hardware to M. Glockner after Magdalena, who was left with these seven children. And, uh, and you have to remember that Magdalena lived until, uh, until 1891. But I think that uh, great-grandfather bought this hardware store back in around 1848-1849. So this article is written in 18, as if Glockner Hardware Company was founded in 1877. So uh, we do know that it was in existence at grandfather's death in 18... Uh, 76. So next week the Glockner Hardware Company will observe the 50th anniversary of the founding of the original store by Bernard Glockner, one of that splendid class of staid, industrious, frugal Germans that served to make up the greater part of business community in the early days. Mr. Bernard Glockner was born in Baden-Baden near Bingen, dear Bingen on the Rhine, coming to Portsmouth the same year that so many of that class did in 1847. In the early 70s, the, he took over the hardware store at 206 Market Street that had been conducted by John Rottinghouse and later going with uh, John L. Hibbs, Rottinghouse went with the Hibbs Hardware Company uh, who were in the same line of trade on Front Street. Uh, the original building that the hardware business was in is still in existence today. It, it's in uh, there is a shoe store in that place of business. We have pictures of it, and uh, it looks like it will be preserved for many more years. Mr. Glockner died.
Bernard Glockner died in 1876 and his burial took place from St. Mary's Church. It is call, recalled that the funeral cortege was the largest ever seen in the city, clearly demonstrating the high esteem in which the deceased was held. Father Noonan conducted the, the uh, funeral and he paid a glowing tribute to the sturdy character of the deceased Bernard Glockner who was well and favorably known and universally respected. When half a century ago Bernard Glockner established a small store that has grown to such large proportions under capable management of members of the family, even the high wheel bicycle had scarcely made its bow to the public. Horse-drawn streetcars were being discussed, cisterns were few, and residents bought, brought river water by the barrel. John Cooley was kept busy making harness and selling horse collars. Sales in the store then were largely that of plows, churns, buck saws, post hole diggers, spades, grindstones, and such goods including large iron and brass kettles. The letterware in general use in the making of a family supply of apple butter, 10 gallons or more. Also, soft soap for the kitchen use was made from the kettles. Market Street at that time was the center of business activity and there was much river and canal trade. There was but one railroad, the M&C, with its platform at 6th Street. The hotels were all on Market Street or west of there and the bank, five of them, were on Market Street and Front Street from Court to Madison was one line of jobber houses. Markets were held twice a week in the mornings on Market Street. Truck farmers coming from Dogwood Ridge, Brewery Hollow Run, Munns Run, and other distant points. The Market House was a scene of political gatherings as in the 60s it had been the recruiting headquarters. It was from Market Square that the gallant old 5th Street uh, Ohio Volunteer Infantry departed for the front in the, in the Civil War, leaving on February the 22nd, 1862 on the steamer Poland and the steamer Commander for Fort Donelson via Paducah. Major Charles F. Renninger was in command. He had been landlord of the Renninger House at the corner of 3rd and built at the ill-fated National Hotel on Sauda Street. The following were among the downtown merchants. A. and B. Brunner, A. Corral, Dan White, Do Dr. Kotzelben, H. P. Yeager, Pat Kenrick, John T. Miller, John Neal, Charles Schmidt, Ed Edwright, John Findes, Chance Wilson, A.D. Miller, Dr. McGuire, George Watkins, Phil Graham, Fred Rackenhouse, Fred Dorr, P.J. Legrand, John Herter, Adam Geisler, Frank Weldy, Ed Ryan, Adam Weiss, and others. Jake Weatherwax had a blacksmith shop on the west side of the square near Plumbing, 
plumbing ship on 3rd, just east of Market Street. On the northwest corner of 3rd and Market Street, Nichols, Ross & Company conducted a furniture store, while Maycomb's Livery Barn was adjoining. At 4th Street, James Charlesworth had a marble works, and adjoining him, the venerable pious David Ramsey operated a grocery. St. Mary's Church was without a cupola, bell or clock, all of which were added later, and to the west was the MC yards, where Nat Barber and Henry Davison looked to the weighing of the tons of pig iron that came in from the Bloom and other furnaces. It was in the 70s that the Seaburgers had a fruit stand on the Brunner Corner, and at times Henry Bertram and Cotton Bernstein, Spud McCann and Warren Gaiman were known to help themselves to peanuts when the busy Abe was selling a gazette. However, be it said to the credit of the now prosperous Ohio stove man that meeting Mr. Seaburger at Atlantic City only a few years ago, he tendered the one-time sidewalk merchant a dollar as part compensation for what Stan, but not only was the money declined, but so glad was Mr. Seaburg to see the erstwhile bony fiddle youngster that the two dined a la carte at the Malaboro Blenheim at the former ex former's expense. They discussed boyhood days much to each other's enjoyment. Mr. Seaburg recalls that the time when Egg Gates beat him in inquire delivery to the Andes, Vernier, Europa, and Taylor House and the wharf secured a pony and bought the papers from the 6th Street Station in far less time than George, Meyer, or Julius could do. Henry says them, them were the Following Bernard Glockner's death, the hardware business was carried on by the widow, her son, Frank, Alex M., and Adolph being in charge, the two latter growing up with the business as both had been uh, in the store for years. On the death of the father, Frank M. Glockner, the eldest son, elected to engage in other enterprises, and he did so later going west where he reared a large family and has been quite successful. Mrs. Glockner died in 1891, that's Magdalena, and it was then that Alex M. and his brother Adolph took over the store. And and up to the time at Alex Glockner's untimely death, which was just two years ago. He died in, in 1925 at the age of 60. And up until that time, he was in active control and with marked success. He was foremost in seeing the city prosper and was proud of the fact that he was partly responsible for its expansion. Mr. Glockner aided materially in the building of the Washington Hotel and was a director in that company. He promoted and advocated the building of the new U.S. Grant Bridge over the Ohio River, now nearing completion, and it would have been a source of keen delight to him had he lived to drive and walk over it as he fully expected to do and to have been present at the dedication 
so soon to take place. Mr. Glockner was a lover of nature's God's greatest outdoors and was known as a true sportsman. He annually visited Michigan and Canada on fishing trips with companions and returning was plentifully supplied with large fish and game. He owned a camp adjacent to the Roosevelt Game Preserve and had expected to establish a silver fox farm there when unfortunately he was called by death. Mr. Glockner, who following a college course acquired a keen knowledge of business and how it should be conducted, enlarged the storeroom and added many new lines including bicycles, sporting goods, fishing gear, and so on. The room added was of an L room cast out of the uh, Brunner Corner. The property long owned was occupied by Phil Zollner. This gave the enterprising new proprietor much necessary room to meet the growing demands of trade. But it was not many years before he was again crowd, crowded and was on the lookout for larger quarters. The business in which he was able, ably assisted by members of the family grew to such an extent that still more room was necessary and in 1914 he moved the store to Galleon Gay Street taking over the entire Heinrich building. Bicycles and carriages having had their day, Mr. Glockner's keen vision saw the coming of the automobile and he added a line of good merchandise to his already large stock and built up such a large business buying the property adjoining his residence at 2nd Chillicothe Streets and establishing a permanent sales room there. Later he built a modern structure to house this large sideline, the handling of the Chevrolet. Having an opportunity to acquire the partly burned out Turley building across the street from the automobile sales room, he did so and remodeling it moved the hardware business into it and occupying the large corner room as well as the second and third floors of that corner block. Here other lines of goods, trunks, cases, paints, radios, washing machines, stoves were added including novelties of many kinds, camping goods, baseball, football, tennis, golfing outfits and large stocks of kindred goods along with glass cutting and installation and a large inventory of firearms that could, be, that could have been found in many larger city stores. The Glockner Hardware Company employs a complete staff of competent assistants and prides itself in giving the best of service. The Sun-Times joins with its many thousands of readers in wishing the company a long-continued success. I know that was lengthy, but I don't know uh, any other way, and that's about the only thing we have been able to find uh, that gave us any background uh, on the past history of the Glockners in business. I do know that Frank Glockner, who was referred to and the oldest son of Bernard of Magdalena, uh, had a stove store and his wife who was a Lang, L-A-N-G, from Lawrenceburg, Indiana 
had a family of five children and was in her early 30s and in wiping down and polishing a uh, stove in the place of business which was up on the uh, 1200 block of Gallia Street that the uh, rag caught fire, her clothing caught fire and she was burned to the extent that it cost her her life. And this left Frank with five young children. And uh, uh, I'll come back to that later and tell you how that family was raised. I'd like to take uh, uh, a moment to uh, elaborate on uh, great-grandfather uh, Bernard Glockner. I, uh, as we know, he married uh, into the Beck family and uh, his sister-in-law, Anna Zimmerer, uh, evidently they were all close and kept contact and we, I have a letter that a Bob Zimmerer Z-I-M-M-E-R-E-R, -E -E uh, who is an attorney in, uh, in uh, Pasadena, Texas, who was reared in Cincinnati, Ohio, and whose mother is still living at the age of 101 and lives alone and cares for herself. She's a hearty soul. But Bob Zimmerer uh, has correspondence in his possession written in German by Bernard Glockner to his in-laws and relatives back in Bingenbaden relative to other members of the family coming to this country. And uh, the cost of a trip from Bingenbaden across the sea to Portsmouth or Cincinnati was $25 American dollars. And for them in Europe to raise or accumulate that kind of uh, purchasing power they had to sell off their lands of their farms and that's what they did when they uh, were able to they sold off the land and provided for another member of the family to come to this country undoubtedly great-grandfather was much interested in that it's also said that Magdalena Bernard's w widow and wife was always had two or three besides her seven children in her home uh, who had come over from the old country and they put them up and cared for them and provided and fed them until they were able to find employment and learn the English language and care for themselves. I have no idea how many but they were noted for their generosity in that regard. Uh, their home, and the only home that I know that they lived in, is in the 600 block of 6th Street and is still being lived in. Uh, it's just uh, close by the church and uh, the west end of town was the German part of the community, called it Bony Fiddle. Uh, there's a lot of interpretation of why they called the area Bony, Bony Fiddle, but uh, it was a fact that as I've been told that uh, 
they had small gardens in their backyards and uh, and uh, some way the word bony fiddle is uh, a derivative of a German phrase and uh, that's what it stands for. Uh, I'd like to uh, shift a minute to uh, back to each one of the children of Magdalena and uh, Bernard Glockner. Uh, they undoubtedly were good, strong Catholic people. They were very devoted to the church and were generous in its support. Uh, the St. Mary's Church that was referred to in the article that I read to you that was down on Market Street was built in 1870. And uh, of course it's our parish church today. And it was built for $3,000. And uh, there wasn't a steeple put on that church until uh, the uh, uh, late the early 1890s, which is the highest uh, steeple or highest building in, in our community. I'd like to come back now to Frank Glockner, the oldest of the seven children. Frank, as I told you earlier, had lost his wife in this terrible accident. And the uh, I know my grandmother uh, took care of his son Frank and I'm going to have to refer to uh, the uh, names of all of the children uh, in uh, Frank's uh, family but Frank had uh, six children that lived and uh, uh, Mary Aquina who uh, I heard much about, lived in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was interesting that Frank's mother-in-law took all these children back to Lawrenceburg where she had lost her husband and had uh, had a store and uh, I think a grocery store and uh, she ran that store and raised his family and she was very much interested in all those children having the best possible education she could afford to give them. So uh, uh, I know Mary, uh, I believe, ended up being a school teacher and an old maid and died in Indianapolis. Uh, Herbert Joseph, who uh, uh, went to California, but he married a Helen Rose Staub, S-T-A-U-B, uh, from Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and of course they are, they had uh, four children, uh, Gertrude, uh, uh, who married a Walker, and uh, his only son, Francis Herbert, uh, who is known as a nickname uh, by the name of uh, Buzz, B-U-S, and Buzz was, uh, uh, had gone overseas uh, prior to World War II, as I understand, and worked uh, in Saudi Arabia, and came back to the States and enlisted and was in the, the uh, a uh, construction battalion 
in the Navy. And uh, when he came out of service, he went back and finished his uh, college and uh, went into the general contracting business on his own. And uh, I didn't meet him until the last eight or nine, eight years. And uh, I have a wide acquaintance of uh, automobile dealers around the country and uh, happen to know the Cadillac dealer in, uh, uh, in the, uh, on the West Coast who couldn't say enough good things about Buzz Glockner. And uh, Buzz married uh, May Rhea DeLong and uh, uh, they have uh, four children. And uh, but going back to Gertrude, Gertrude has two children, uh, son James Robert and uh, Elizabeth Ann. And, and uh, like I say, Buzz has four children, uh, a son Donald Herbert, who uh, lives in Seattle, Washington, and uh, is a CPA and has been in the publishing business and uh, only has one daughter by his marriage. And uh, Lois Jean married a Tom Michaels, and they have three children, a son uh, and two daughters. And Linda Sue married a, a Stornetta, John Stornetta, and uh, they have three children, uh, uh, a boy and two girls. And then their youngest daughter, Kathy, uh, is has never married and uh, lives up in Oregon. By the way, uh, Lois Jean uh, uh, and her husband Tom Michaels live in uh, Days Creek, Oregon. <clears throat> uh, they're ranch people and uh, uh, timber. Uh, they're in the timber business. And uh, Linda Sue's husband uh, is associated with the, the phone company and Kathy is a uh, has been teaching uh, in the grade school system and is now in a college level uh, of teaching uh, in the Oregon area. Uh, then Margaret Mary uh, who had been injured in a in an accident uh, never married and she passed away in 1986 and Barbara Louise uh, uh, married a George Gowen, and uh, they have uh, four four children, and uh, Christy Marie, and uh, who married a Sadler, and Joyce Louise, who married a Dunn, Dave Dunn, and Steve Craig, who married. Uh, Sarah Stouffer, and I think he's in uh, the state of Kansas and is a, uh, a teacher. And uh, Leslie Diane is married to Daniel Young. And uh, that takes care of, uh, I think, all of uh, uh, Herb Glockner's children. Uh, then we uh, come over and there are two daughters uh, of Frank's by the name of Gertrude Amelia who never married and died in 1938 at the age of 38. Uh, 
Christine Mildred uh, Glockner was born 1895, died in 1930, never married at the age of 35. Uh, William Charles, uh, uh, William uh, married an uh, Olga Doss who was from uh, uh, Arkansas. They have one daughter, Lynn Amelia. Uh, William was a veterinarian and uh, worked for the government all his life and lived all over the South. And uh, uh, I never met him, but uh, in later years, uh, my father and his sister uh, Helen uh, and my mother uh, had several visits with them down in Louisville. And uh, of course, uh, Bill and his wife are both deceased. Lynn married uh, uh, a uh, a Dalcom, and uh, he works for the state of Kentucky. And they have two daughters that are college age, and. Uh, I guess uh, Frank uh, Aloysius uh, is the only one that I really got to know back in the early or in the late 1940s and early 50s. He came back with his wife and Irene and uh, bought some cars from us. And uh, they have four children. Uh, They have uh, their daughter June, Irene, married Ed Unger. Ed was from San Francisco, uh, ended up being sales manager of, uh, of uh, uh, 3M Corporation and lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota until the last few years and they moved to uh, Phoenix, Arizona where they've retired. They have five children. I know one daughter lives in New Zealand and has a family, I believe, of three. Uh, uh, they have uh, uh, a younger son that is not married, that lives in the Minneapolis area. Uh, I'm almost afraid to uh, say anymore. They have a daughter Jane and Cynthia and uh, Marie Ann and one, one of those girls lives uh, on the continent that uh, married a, uh, I believe, a uh, Hollander <clears throat> and uh, another daughter lives in the uh, Boulder, Colorado area and the other daughter is still single and lives in the San Francisco area. Uh, think that uh, then uh, there's Frank Aloysius who we call <coughs> Wink who has a son and a daughter and he lives in uh, South Laguna Beach California and uh, they had a, a son David who uh, was born in 1931 was killed in 1953 in a pedestrian car accident and uh, their youngest son, James Joseph, who was uh, heavy in real estate. And by the way, uh, Frank was in real estate uh, in the uh, 
California area and uh, in the Los Angeles area I should say and uh, uh, his son Jim followed in that footsteps but Jim died uh, April the 10th of 1987 and uh, uh, he was quite a character and we really all enjoyed him. He never married, never had any children. So the only offspring of uh, are from the two marriages, June and Frank, of uh, Frank's ch uh, family. Uh, so that covers Frank Glockner, uh, the oldest son of Bernard and Magdalena. Now I'll take you over to Anna Glockner, who married Adolph Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S, <clears throat> and. Uh, I did get to know them as a young boy and uh, uh, was always interested in them. Uh, uh, Adolph Meyer was a meat cutter <clears throat> and uh, had butcher shops and uh, I know that he once lived in uh, Lexington, Kentucky and came back to Portsmouth and uh, I know Sister Aquin influenced them in coming to uh, Rochester, Minnesota and uh, Ann and uh, uh, Ann and uh, Adolph uh, had uh, four children and uh, <clears throat> they had Mary Myers and uh, she uh, had no children. Uh, Magdalena, called her Lena, Elizabeth Myers, uh, died at the age of 19 and had no children. Charlie Myers uh, died at the, uh, was born in 1882 and died in uh, 1950 and had no offspring. Uh, Louis, Louise Meyer uh, it was the same way, had no offspring, never married. And then we come to Adolph Meyer, who uh, had uh, four children, and uh, the oldest one was Audrey Gertrude, and uh, she married uh, Chester Castle, and they live in, in, or in Washington. Uh, James F. Meyer uh, died at the age of 20, never married, didn't have any offspring. Uh, Audrey, uh, by the way, has uh, three children, uh, William Scott uh, Castle and Carol Jean uh, Hyatt and uh, Kat, uh, Kenneth James uh, and uh, they all live in the uh, state of Washington. Then uh, Robert uh, uh, Meyer, uh, Bob as we call him, uh, has been a uh, rancher and a, uh, and, and a very successful one uh, in the, uh, in the uh, area of uh, 
Inland Washington, I want to say, uh, uh, I've forgotten uh, where, I want to say Pasco, Washington, but uh, Yakima, Washington, uh, he had beef cattle. I understand from a fellow I flew with in service who uh, uh, knows Bob real well, I've only met Bob once. Uh, He's quite a guy. He has a restaurant now and uh, uh, plays around with some racehorses. Uh, he had two daughters by his marriage, and uh, he has uh, Kathleen Fay, who married a Hill, and uh, Roberta Ann, and uh, they have children. And then Shirley, uh, the youngest, uh, married a Pascal Hancock and she has two children, Peter Michael and and Tammy Marie. But Shirley's husband died uh, uh, about four years ago and uh, she lives uh, in the uh, in the Washington area. probably one of the most colorful people I've ever met and and I met him back in 1967 and uh, was really the uh, person that, that brought together uh, the Glockners and the uh, Portsmouth Glockners and the Myers and uh, of course we've always had a relationship with uh, Jim Glockner uh, has found great interest in his relationship back here and uh, so uh, over the years uh, uh, the Meyer family has been out of touch and basically Sister Aquin was the one who really kept the family together. She really was concerned about her brothers and sisters, her brothers and sister and uh, uh, she really uh, kept up on them. But anyway, I, it, it would be an interesting half-hour story to tell how it came about that uh, Bill Meyer and his wife, uh, 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 Cecilia, uh, what a great pair they were and they had two sons, uh, William B. Meyer uh, and Bill had a daughter and a son and he just lost the, the son uh, right before the end of the year in 1988 of cancer at the age of 37 and uh, he had a family that he left behind and uh, they have a daughter, uh, Mary Louise and she has a daughter, uh, Penny Jean. Then Byron Meyer, uh, probably more like his dad than anyone, but I'd like to go back to Bill Meyer, uh, the youngest son of, of Anna and Adolph. As a young fella, he went out to the West Coast and uh, he homesteaded land in the Yakima Valley and, uh, and he ended up uh, was quite an adventurer I guess and he stowed away on a ship uh, 
during the gold rush days, the late 90s, uh, up into Alaska and didn't have a thing uh, financially and uh, I guess they found him aboard ship but uh, he had quite a personality but he ended up uh, staying up in the uh, gold rush and I guess he made a little money and came back down to the Yakima Valley and moved his mother and family and father and the family out into that area and uh, they set out a apple orchard and uh, they were quite sizable farmers, uh, wheat and, uh, uh, and cattle farmers and I know they leased land from the uh, Indian reservation that's close by them and uh, Byron has told some good stories and I hope that he tapes some of his because they really are interesting. Uh, his son Byron has uh, married uh, uh, Glenna May O'Leary and uh, they have two sons, uh, Timothy Francis and uh, uh, he has uh, two sons, uh, David Byron and uh, Alex D. Uh, and Scott Phillip is still living at home and uh, is a well-educated young man, but uh, really hasn't caught on to what he wants to do yet. So that takes care of uh, Anna Glockner and, and uh, her family. Of course, uh, Louise Glockner became Sister Aquin, and Sister Aquin was quite a person. Uh, I, uh, I'd like to read what was written of her uh, both in the history of this order and uh, and her obituary which one of the sisters just sent me uh, taken out of the archive files of the uh, Rochester Franciscans but uh, she died in 1941 and uh, at the age of uh, 83 and uh, she had fallen and broken her hip and was quite a large woman but very learned and very stern and I know as a young boy when she'd come home on visits I was just real uh, scared of her and I know she was home for a visit uh, one time when Anna and Adolph Meyer were here visiting and it was interesting for me to listen to them uh, visit although I didn't remember all of the stories but I know in listening to Sister Aquin talk about uh, relatives and uh, first cousins once removed and uh, second cousins and double cousins and uh, uh, just infatuated uh, me and she's really responsible for the family tree and the uh, genealogy that we have on the Glockner family because on her 25th anniversary uh, of uh, her profession as a nun her brothers uh, gave her uh, a gift of a trip to Europe and she went back to Bingenbaden and, uh, and of course she spoke and read German and she uh, looked up all of the baptismal records that 
there at the little church in Bingenbad. And uh, uh, she brought all this information back, but no one did anything with it until 1969 when my father and, and my brother sat down and, and uh, put all this format of this family tree together, which I hope all of you have and are keeping because uh, there aren't many families that have the perpetuation and the uh, knowledge of their ancestry and its lineage that we have. Uh, it was my experience for my brother Dave and I and my uh, wife Joanne and I two years ago this month uh, to have gone to Germany and we went to Bingenbaden and of course we don't speak German, we don't read German, but we took the family tree with us and and uh, the the deacon at the church that still exists in the little town and and it's very small I'd say maybe 24 houses uh, by the way the Glockner home that was built in the early 1700s is is still intact it's been remodeled uh, since 1970 but uh, the cornerstone is still there and uh, it's still being lived in and the last Glockner relative uh, that had ownership of it had adopted a war orphan out of World War II and uh, they have since deceased and they left that home to uh, this individual and we talked with him through an interpreter and uh, we have pictures of it, and of course we have pictures of it that when Aunt Helen and my Aunt Anne were in uh, Germany uh, probably 12 or 15 years ago, maybe longer than that, uh, before it had been remodeled. So, uh, But anyway, the church archives, these people couldn't get over the detail and the authenticity of how well this family tree was put together and everything we had on there until this, uh, those that were born in this country, but all the records on these families are still intact and it's amazing the, uh, how well kept the records are. So uh, that's how we came to having what we have. Uh, as to uh, our ancestry and our lineage. To finish up on my little story about Sister Aquin, uh, whether you know this or not, the, uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, was of course started by the Mayo brothers as, as a result of uh, a tornado that had done great devastation to that area, but the Sisters of St. Francis, uh, which uh, Sister Aquin was a very active member of, were instrumental in the development of St. Mary's Hospital, which is about a 1,400-bed hospital, and the Mayo Clinic. And uh, uh, Sister Aquin also had the responsibility, they had uh, members of their order that were having tubercular problems which was 
common of the area era uh, she went out to the west coast and uh, bought property and and uh, developed a convalescent home for the tubercular uh, members of their order and of course when she was in the west coast uh, she uh, was due diligent to make sure that her brothers Frank and Bill and their offspring were all staying true to their Catholic faith and uh, if they weren't uh, she really worked them over and uh, she had great interest in in the preservation of the saving of one another's souls and the honor and glory of God and the love of God and I uh, I know uh, I, I did do not have with me as I'm sitting here this evening uh, her obituary but I will bring that into play later on in my discussion but before I uh, leave Frank Glockner uh, too far behind I have a uh, biographical sketch of him that's printed was printed in a 1899 history of Scioto County Portsmouth Ohio and I'd like to read it to you Frank A. Glockner a son of Bernard and Magdalena Beck Glockner native of Bingenbaden Germany was born August the 26th of 1855 in Portsmouth Ohio he attended St. Mary's School and later took a course of study in a business college. He learned the, the tenor's trade at H. Eberhardt's and after finishing his trade assisted his father in the hardware business. His father died in 1876 and he took charge of the business for his mother until 1884. In that year, he moved to Lexington, Kentucky and was engaged in the shoe business in that place for five years. In 1889, he went to Cincinnati for four years. He carried on a grocery business. In 1893, he returned to Portsmouth and since that time has been engaged in the stove and hardware business at 121 and at 1210 and 1230 uh, Gaia Street. On May 15, 1889, he was married to Mary E. Lang of Lawrenceburg, Indiana. She died November the 5th, 1901 at the age of 39. They had eight children, uh, Magdalene and Frank, who died in infancy, Mary, Herbert, Frank, William, Catherine, and Gertrude. So this is the only uh, written background that we have and, and of the hearsay that I was told by my family and my Aunt Helen especially, Aunt Helen Glockner, uh, about the Frank Glockner and the, uh, and the uh, Meyer family and Sister uh, Aquin, uh, Louise Glockner. Now we're down to Alex M. Glockner, uh, who I am an offspring of, who was my grandfather. And uh, I think I'll just start off with the biographical sketch that was written in the 1899 history of Sayota County. Alex 
Martin Glockner was born April 9, 1866, in Portsmouth, Ohio, the son of Bernard Glockner and Magdalena Beck Glockner. His father came to America in 1847 and his mother in 1853. They were married in 1854. He received his early education in St. Mary's Catholic School, which he attended for six years, at the end of which time he entered his mother's hardware store to work, but he did not like it, and learned the molder's trade, at which he worked for five years. He then took a course in the Portsmouth Business College and again entered the hardware store owned and conducted by his mother. His father engaged in the hardware business in 1872, succeeding John B. Rottinghouse. He died October 27, 1876, and the business was conducted in the name of his mother, Mrs. M. Glockner, until October 22, 1891, when she died. The business was then purchased by Alex uh, Glockner, who has owned and managed it ever since. It is now one of the largest and most substantial retail businesses in the Portsmouth area and it is a credit to the town as well as its young and energetic proprietor. Our subject was married to Adelaide Lang, L-A-N-G-E, daughter of John Lang, well that's really daughter of Joe Lang, uh, January the 11th, 1892, by whom he has two children, but they had four children. Edward, age seven, who was my father, and the only son of that marriage, and Helen, age five, who never married and died uh, in 1984, uh, I think at the age of 87. He is a member of St. Mary's Catholic Church and a member of the Knights of St. George. He was reared a Democrat, but does not follow his early teachings very closely. On the, on the contrary, he is very liberal in his political views. While norm, nominally a Democrat, he votes for the man and the measure oftener than for the political party. Mr. Glockner is an excellent example of what is called American energy and push. Starting but with little more than an ordinary boy, he has by constant application of industry and acute business insight established a business which is a shining index to his business ability. Besides being a first-class businessman, he is a true sportsman and takes a keen interest in his dogs and gun and fishing tackle as he does in his business. One of his chief delights is to follow the hounds or hunt beside a, a blooded pointer or a setter. And that's true. I uh, I was only five years old when I, grandfather died, and I feel like I know him, but I know I was too young to really know him. I guess he, my being the first grandchild and the first grandson, uh, he probably had a lot of hopes and, and uh, enjoyment about thinking about the future. But the thing that I have enjoyed about him is uh, uh, the stories that they tell about him and what a character he was. 
uh, I guess he was jovial. He never knew a stranger. Uh, he was a hard, disciplined businessman. Uh, he wasn't afraid of a risk. He gave much to the community, both in money and of his time, as we read earlier in uh, uh, my comments uh, about his being involved in uh, stockholder in a big and the largest hotel in our community, which is now a, con a uh, retirement home uh, or retirement apartments. And uh, he was involved in the construction of a bridge across the river, which opened up all the commerce from the Kentucky side of the river. It uh, was dependent on the big city of Portsmouth for uh, its goods and services and professional and health care, and still is. But he loved to hunt, and I guess he had a philosophy when business was good, uh, you could afford to go hunting and uh, fishing, and uh, if business was bad, there was no use staying around the business because there's nothing you could do about it, so you go hunting or fishing. So he and uh, his brother uh, Adolf, Uncle Adolf, uh, uh, whom he took into the business as a full partner uh, in the hardware business, uh, were quite the guys with uh, with their guns and and sportsmen. Of course, they would go out and stay with these farm people who came in and dealt with them, uh, bought from them, and they. Uh, very hospitable, and they would go out and hunt uh, dove and quail and uh, uh, rabbit. And uh, uh, I can feel like I can remember, although I've seen pictures of uh, just string after string of birds still in the feathers. I mean, they'd uh, gutted them, but it was cold in the winter, and uh, that was their means of. Uh, preserving and keeping them frozen would be strung across the back porch uh, high in the air and uh, uh, grandpa's wife, uh, my grandmother, uh, was just a great cook and uh, but anyway they had they hunted uh, behind and over uh, English pointers and setters and uh, they bred their own dogs and always had a kennel full and and uh, uh, they were just known all over. Uh, Grandpa was a great, uh, they, he and Adolph both were great for going to Canada and hunting bear and elk and uh, never heard too much about deer because there was plenty of deer around this area. But uh, Aunt Helen always told me about him that when business uh, and the pressures of business and and he would get upset uh, about things. He would just go down at the park on the river bank and uh, sit and watch the river. And uh, seemed to be his means of relaxing and getting away from it all. Of course, my grandfather married uh, uh, my grandmother, who was. Uh, Maria Adelaide Lang, and uh, uh, she was just a wonderful lady, and uh, 
of course they had four children. My father was the oldest, my Aunt Helen was the second, uh, and uh, Louise who became Sister Thomas Aquin in the same order as Sister Aquin was in, and they were at the mother house together. Uh, she was a tall, stately, jovial, just a lovely person and a very talented, musically and talented person. And uh, her, and she had a younger sister, uh, Anna, uh, who married uh, Edwin von Lurdy. And uh, Anne is still living today, but is not in good health at all. And I think she's about 82. But uh, Sister Thomas Aquin uh, was uh, at missions within a 30-mile radius of Portsmouth. So as I grew up, we were with her quite a bit. I was with her on her deathbed, uh, always wrote to her all the way through service. And uh, of course, I feel her prayers help me. And uh, but just loved her and, and uh, she died in 1946 of cancer at the uh, age of 46. So uh, that's the background on her. Now my father was, uh, uh, like I say, the only son and uh, like many fathers and sons, they didn't get along together. Uh, and that was true of my grandfather and my father. And uh, my father was a very talented fella. Uh, I don't know if he was spoiled or not, but uh, he was a good mechanic. And uh, of course, he and my grandfather uh, chose to take on the Chevrolet franchise in 1912. And uh, uh, we think we're the old, and of course, uh, to take, go a little farther with the Chevrolet franchise, uh, there was a fellow by the name of Bill Durant who uh, started General Motors Corporation. And he was from Flint, Michigan. He came off the farm and came into Flint and went to work as a, an insurance salesman. And... Uh, he, uh, there was a, a buggy manufacturer in Flint and uh, he went to him and asked how many buggies can you build a year and the man said around 1800 and he said I'll buy them all and uh, with that they made a deal with the guy and uh, with the manufacturer and he went off and he chose uh, hardware merchants to be his outlets or his dealers to sell these buggies. He came to Portsmouth and he induced grandfather uh, to take on the buggies. This was in 1906, 1904, and uh, Bill Durant went on to uh, get into the automobile business by starting a, the public company of General Motors Corporation, and they bought the uh, Oldsmobile and uh, uh, manufacturing facilities and uh, then Buick and uh, weren't making money and the stockholders uh, voted him out as uh, president of the company and uh, 
uh, he left and went and started building a, a uh, car and wanted to race that car uh, because Oldsmobile had gotten their notoriety and their imagery by racing on dirt tracks. Of course, the cars would only do about 30 mile an hour, but that was fast compared to the horse and buggy. Uh, so Durant uh, uh, got a hold of a fellow by the name of Louis Chevrolet, who was French, and a race car driver and his brother, who were both good mechanics, and uh, they built a car and they raced it and called it Chevrolet after Louis Chevrolet. And uh, they, uh, Bill Durant went out to build a dealer organization who would buy these cars and sell them uh, under a franchise system as much as we have today. And he came back to these same hardware merchants who had bought buggies from him and that's how he came back to grandfather. and. In 1911 was the first year they built Chevrolet, and and he signed up grandfather and shipped the, the first Chevrolet that was shipped to them was a 1912 model, and uh, they had to drive those cars down from Flint, Michigan, and uh, the rear ends in them were a regular Model T rear end, and uh, it there were only dirt roads all the way down and. It would take them a couple of days to drive, and my dad would go up with a group of young fellows, and they'd drive these cars back. And uh, of course, the weather was bad and wet. They got stuck in the mud and and uh, snow and everything else. But when they came, got them back, they really had to overhaul the rear ends on them, and in many cases, put new rubber on. But uh, in order to buy those cars, uh, they had to pay for them, and of course, uh, to sell them, there was no such thing. The banks wouldn't finance a car, and uh, of course, the people were skeptical of them. As these are stories that my father told me. That uh, of course, they ended up trading people out of horses and buggies as trade-ins on automobiles, on Chevrolets, and. Uh, uh, of course, they became what you call a horse trader. Only the first horse traders, rather than trading horse for horse, a horse for an iron horse or a, a Chevrolet. Uh, at the same time, my dad took on the Harley Davidson motorcycle franchise and uh, moved a fella into Portsmouth by the name of Harry McNear from Jackson. And they were all young fellows in their early, in their late teens and early twenties and and uh, uh, there are a lot of good tales and a lot of pictures in our possession of their experiences riding those Harley Davidson motorcycles weren't which were a little bit more than a motorbike but uh, I know uh, they built a flood wall around Portsmouth after 1913. Uh, someplace around 1917 and uh, those fellows used to ride those motorcycles uh, on that flood wall which was only uh, 24 inches wide and some places uh, 20 feet drop off of the sides and they would ride that uh, flood wall for six and seven miles and no one fall off so they were pretty good 
riders, I would say. Of course, they raced motorcycles. But the interesting story uh, always was that uh, uh, Grandpa was coming from lunch one day from out the street, and he saw a real bad car accident at the corner of 3rd and Gay Street, which was a block from the hardware and the Chevrolet dealership. And, and uh, my dad walked in the back door and his father was laughing about seeing this accident and how bad the cars were tore up and one car was turned over and, and uh, he didn't bother to go up to see if anybody was hurt. And uh, he was just uh, chuckling about it. And my dad hated to tell him, but it was Grandpa's car and my dad was driving it that had been wrecked. And of course, uh, that made the story less amusing for Grandpa and uh, more severe and irate uh, in words toward my father. And uh, my grandfather rode him so heavy about that that he wouldn't let him drive, so to keep him from stealing the car, he chained the wheel around a chain around the wheel and a chain around a, a uh, tree. And uh, my dad, uh, they at night, all they'd do would uh, take the uh, hub bolt off and uh, and take the let the wheel lay against the tree and take had another spare wheel and put on it and they'd go and run the car all evening and and come back and put the uh, chained up wheel back on it and Grandpa never knew about it. But uh, eventually the severity of the criticism over that accident, uh, my dad enlisted in the Army and uh, as a mechanic and uh, in World War One, and uh, he uh, ended up in, uh, as an advance uh, group going to France and uh, the United States was building an American SPAD aircraft and it was being crated over on steamers and they were to assemble them and, and put them in a final uh, manufactured condition to be used in combat. And uh, my dad went over and uh, set that assembly up with a group and uh, was and he, he was a top sergeant and uh, uh, when he had, was recommended for a commission and uh, uh, when the war was over. But uh, he ended up with Rickenbacker squadron and uh, we have some uh, squadron insignias off of those canvas covered planes that he brought back from World War One. But uh, my dad always had an interest in flying, and, and so anyway, my uh, my dad uh, married my mother. My mother was uh, named Helen Fols, F-O-L-Z, from Cincinnati, and uh, her great grandfather came over from, or her grandfather came over from Germany, and he was a name was Dave Fulce and uh, he was a uh, street contractor in Cincinnati, Ohio. Most of the streets of the old part of the city were all cobblestone, limestone, uh, hard limestone, uh, granite stone streets and that's what he did. And uh, 
she was the second of eight children and always wondered how my dad met her and I heard stories as I was younger and he, uh, my dad had a cousin by the name of Anna Ruthemeyer and I since found out that Anna Ruthemeyer's uh, mother was a Zimmerer. Now you're going back to the and who and uh, her mother was uh, uh, Anna's. Her grandmother was Anna Zimmerer. So Anna Ruthmeyer was a first cousin to my dad and uh, my mother's best friend. And my and Anna Ruthmeyer introduced my mother to my father and. Uh, and they were wed, and uh, I'm the result of their first uh, offspring, and uh, I'm the oldest of six children. But I want to digress for a minute. Anna Ruthmeyer, in turn, married my dad's best friend, fellow an Irishman by the name of Bill Fogarty from Jackson, Ohio, which is a little town about 35 miles from Portsmouth. And, uh, and Bill Fogarty was a Harley Davidson motorcycle rider with uh, part of the motorcycle gang. And uh, Bill ended up moving to Cincinnati where he married Anna Ruthemeyer and we were always good friends, the family, the Ruthemeyers. Uh, they had uh, three children, uh, Bill and Joe and Anna Kathleen and uh, uh, we still uh, keep in contact with them. So uh, that is from the back side of the family but interesting how that came about. Well coming on back to, to uh, Alex Glockner's uh, son and uh, and my father, there were six children. I was the oldest of the six. I had a, a brother, Leo, that was 20 months younger than myself, and a sister, Janet, uh, uh, four years younger, and brother Dave, who was uh, uh, eight years younger, and uh, brother Bill is 10 years younger, and uh, brother Don is about 13 years younger. Uh, my, bro my brother uh, uh, Lee and I, uh, I failed in the third grade of grade school and my brother Lee caught up with me so we went through grade school and high school, went our freshman year to college at St. Joseph's College at Rensselaer, Indiana. I had a football scholarship there and my dad said this was in 1940-41. My dad said there was going to be a war and he didn't need a, to have an education to, to fight a war. And he said, you guys are going to be in it. So uh, we didn't go back to school after our freshman year. We went to work in a, in a, uh, a defense plant for uh, Curtis Wright Corporation building uh, aircraft engines. And I always said, I hope I never have to fly behind one of those engines. Well. Pearl Harbor happened uh, about six months after we went to work and uh, of course I 
a couple of my friends were injured at Pearl Harbor. I had wanted to enlist in the Navy when I came out of high school. My dad wouldn't sign for me, and uh, so we. Uh, disturbed me. I had saved enough money to buy a new car. I had about $1,200, so I went back to college uh, and got a private pilot's license under the old civilian pilot training program and then enlisted in the Naval Air Corps. In the meantime, my brother Lee enlisted in the Naval Air Corps and he went into civilian pilot training along with a first cousin, uh, Bob Glockner, who uh, well, Bob isn't a first cousin. He was a first cousin of my dad. He's the youngest son of Adolf Glockner, which we'll get to. But uh, he and my brother Lee were stationed together. And uh, then uh, they were seven weeks behind me, and we all ended up uh, being uh, stationed together at the University of Iowa for six weeks before I left. And... Uh, but anyway, uh, my cut, my brother Lee was, I was commissioned in uh, July of 43 from Corpus Christi, Texas as a torpedo pilot and was on my way to Jacksonville, Florida for operational training in combat aircraft and uh, I stopped off to see my brother Lee who was a cadet at Pensacola and had four nice days with him and uh, uh, about uh, seven weeks later he was killed uh, in a, uh, after he'd completed his training in a uh, extra flight that was given to his, his uh, squadron for uh, outstanding uh, achievement and, uh, uh, and in a freak accident uh, flying in a right echelon, the, the instructor who was leading them uh, flew into a uh, flock of uh, pelicans and one of the pelicans hit the leading edge of my brother's plane, knocked the pitot tube off which is, uh, causes the function of the airspeed indicator and it also spoiled the down at the leading edge of the uh, plane, which uh, made the plane unstable uh, from a lateral standpoint. He took the plane up and tested its stalling characteristics and uh, made a, an approach to the airport. Evidently got too slow because the wing dropped and they went into the swamp and uh, he and that boy that was flying with him uh, were killed. And, uh, was interesting after all these years, about five years ago, a fellow that I grew up with uh, said, I saw your brother killed. He said, we were on field maneuvers in the swamps uh, and I saw that plane go down uh, about a mile from me and uh, of course he said when I got back to camp and had word from home why I knew that the time and the day that that was the accident that I had witnessed. So it's a small world. So uh, that took care of my and my sister Janet uh, married uh, a 
fellow that I had gone to school with, only a couple years older than I, and by the name of Joe Gallenstein, and they had ten children. Uh, I married Joanne Crick, uh, K-R-I-C-K, uh, a local girl, and, uh, and uh, in, 19, in January of 1950. We have a daughter, Susan, uh, was born in 1950, in uh, late October, uh, nine months after our wedding. And uh, my son Andy was born two years later, and uh, our daughter Mary Ann was born 15 months after that. And uh, we've never had any more children. In the meantime, my brother Dave and brother Bill got married in 1950, and they each have 12 children, and my sister Janet has 10. And my youngest brother, Don, who, by the way, was a jet pilot and an air transport pilot in the Army Air Force, Air Corps, uh, during Berlin Airlift and the Korean War. And uh, he came out of service and uh, went to work as an air traffic control person at Greater Cincinnati Airport, and he retired three years ago. Uh, as a supervisor from air traffic control. They have seven children. So there are 44 offspring of the five marriages of my mother and father. And uh, last I counted, with all of the uh, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, those that have married into the family, there's 142 out of my mother and father's uh, beginning of uh, the we five off living offspring. So uh, we constitute a big bunch on this family tree and uh, uh, there are 24 Glockner boys out of those 44 children and uh, I think that uh, we think the Glockner name is going to stay around a while but I don't think we'll ever see the large families that that we had, and and uh, and it's just great. I just love my nieces and nephews, and and uh, there's some good stories to tell about. Uh, I'd like to tell some stories uh, since I guess while I'm on myself and our side of the family. Uh, uh, we were kids. Of course, the Glockners, uh, when grandfather died in 1925, they had a lot of debt, and, and of course the Depression hit them, and, uh, which I think the same thing happened to the Glockners on the West Coast. Uh, but there, there is a honesty, moral ethic that I feel has been transmitted through the Glockner family, and, and not just the Glockner family, but I just think specifically it's, it's, there's something that continues to flow through uh, that, uh, that honesty is the best policy and if you owe somebody, and uh, I don't know of any of them that have ever taken a bankruptcy to avoid paying a creditor, but uh, uh, they, uh, the whole 
concept of my grandfather and I know his brothers uh, that if it took you three generations to pay off your creditors, that's what you did. And uh, with the depression hitting and the, the large debt and the drop off and uh, the bank holiday trapping all their working capital that they did have in the banks, uh, they were forced uh, by their creditors to liquidate uh, their inventories and, uh, and that's what they did with the hardware store and uh, they, they lost the real estate. Uh, the dealership real estate was uh, taken back uh, for a $30,000 note by Penn Mutual Life Insurance. I can remember when they were selling, auctioning off the uh, inventory at the hardware store and it was selling, it was bringing about 10 cents on the dollar of my dad and his sister Aunt Helen standing out on the sidewalk just crying because, uh, and they were young, I mean, uh, you got to remember that uh, uh, my dad uh, was in his early 30s and, and Aunt Helen and uh, so uh, it was a tough time and I I know in looking at the financial statements that I have that uh, have been accumulated uh, back into the uh, back into the 1900s uh, but I, I don't know how they made it through the depression years and then here by 1940, uh, they they were getting their act together and things were going well for them. And here comes the war, which you got to remember, and I think it's interesting that your great grandfather they they left Germany. The story that's been heard, they left Germany to get away from Kaiser Wilhelm, to get away from wars. Here they come over here in 1847. What what happens to them? Here comes the Civil War, and I, I don't know what went on. I know you know the Ohio River is a Mason-Dixon line, and Portsmouth's on the north side of the Mason-Dixon line. But the people on the south side of the Mason-Dixon line, on the Kentucky side, in eastern Kentucky, were anti-slavery. So most of them fought with the Union. I guess grandfather and uh, great-grandfather and his brother were have not heard anything about what they did or what went on during the Civil War. The only thing I know is on my grandmother's side, her father, Joe Lang, was the bookkeeper in the Gaylord Mill, which was a pig iron and iron mill on the riverbank at, at Portsmouth when Morgan's Raiders came and got in behind the Union lines and north of the Mason-Dixon line and were pillaging and burning towns and, and any manufacturing process they could and they got within 12 miles of Portsmouth and for some reason diverted away but uh, great-grandfather Lang uh, tore up the floor in his office and dug a hole and buried all of the what currency they had and 
and the books underground and uh, in case they burnt that mill down. Well, uh, Morgan's Raiders didn't have to burn it down. It uh, burned down of its own accord a couple years later. But uh, uh, that's the only thing that I've heard uh, in the family about the Civil War. But here we come up into uh, Portsmouth was inundated. It's been a flood town uh, ever since, uh, and most of the river towns have been on the Ohio and the Mississippi, uh, are subject to floods and uh, they had no history of a 50-year flood factor or a 100-year flood factor like they have today. But 1913, the normal pool stage of the river before they built dams was nine feet and uh, the water flood level in 1913 was 63 feet. So, uh, you know, that's 54 feet above normal pool stage of the river. And of course, that came up and got in all the homes. The family have lost so much because of the floods uh, uh, inundating those homes never thinking the water would ever get up as high as it was the last time. Lost their pictures, their books, uh, so much of the memorabilia that most people would have who lived in the same town for the number of years that, you know, the Glockners have had roots in Portsmouth. I mean, you know, we're into 140 years here now and 141 years and uh, uh, there aren't many families today that stay around in one uh, and perpetuate themselves as long as this family. And, uh, you know, we've got my grandchildren are sixth generation, and they expect to stay here and stay in business. None of us have ever gone in business to build a business up and to sell it. We've got an old saying that, that's been drilled into me, and, 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 and it's a truism that first generation starts a business, the second generation operates it, and the third generation liquidates it. In other words, shirt tails to shirt tails in three generations. There's less than 15% of businesses that perpetuate from a first generation to a second generation. In other words, 85% of businesses will be sold to satisfy the greed or desire for the liquidity that's locked in or the, and the value in that business by the person that started it. The second generation that gets it, there's less than 1% of the original will perpetuate into a third generation. I was a fourth generation in business and a third generation in the car business. And my son now is a fifth generation in business and a fourth generation in the car business. And we don't know of anybody that's perpetuated any better. And with the large families that we have, to have been able to buy and settle up with everybody without alienating and losing the, the love and respect and affection and, and the uh, friendship and uh, the family uh, 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 camaraderie has to say a lot for the character of, of the families and 
what's been transmitted through to everyone. So, uh, but I want to go back about, uh, I, I brought you up through the hardships of, of, of our ancestors. Uh, you know, we ended up in 37 with another flood that was 77 feet above that six foot, nine foot normal pool stage of the river. And uh, everyone thought the water would never get above 63 feet, so they put their pianos on a brick that would put them up four inches above uh, what it was in 1913. And here they get 14 feet more water than that. So you know what, it put it on the second floor of most of those homes that were built that only had water on the floor of them in 1913. So it was a real devastating setback and have a real economic impact on any business because you, you're, you've lost business time, you've got to clean up, uh, you, you, uh, it's, it's just a devastating period. And I was 16 in 1937 and, uh, and uh, it was interesting to live through that and uh, to see how a town comes back and keeps going. But I think the big thing is that where I'm coming from, that my father uh, didn't have, I don't know how he raised it, we six kids. And if it wasn't for Aunt Helen and her business sense and the little money she took out of the business that in order for my dad to have a little more, but I know that $200 a month was the most my dad ever had at any one time to take care of his family and he lost his home and never owned another home until 1955. Uh, so we lived in rented property. Uh, we wore hand-down clothes that came down from uh, relatives in Cincinnati that weren't as severely affected. Uh, didn't have any impact on me. Most of the guys I grew up with didn't have it either. So we spent what we do with their time. Well, we played ball. We uh, were what jobs uh, that you could find. Uh, so we spent a lot of time on the river. We lived within a block of the river or four blocks of the river. So come May 15th, it was always a uh, it was a uh, holy day. We would go down and go shiny hiney, skinny dip into the river. And I'm telling you, it was cold. But we never owned a bathing suit until we came out of service in 1946. Uh, us guys uh, built little old flat bottom John boats. And back when I was in the eighth grade, another friend of myself, my mother, had taken my brother Bill down to Cincinnati Children's Hospital to have a, his neck was growing over to one side and took him down to have a, something clipped in here and put in a brace. He was only six years old. And, uh, and Pop, uh, anyway, this other guy and I on Sunday morning went six o'clock mass. We got in that boat, that's 120 miles down the river 
we had a little five horsepower outboard motor and a 14 foot boat. We took off and we got down, well we were sunk by a paddle wheeler that was coming up the river uh, about 10 miles below town and we jumped in the water and, and uh, got the boat over to shore and unloaded it and got the water out of it and got going again. We got down, we made 100 miles that day because the river was up, the current was strong, probably four or five mile an hour current, and we didn't have to lock through the five uh, dams uh, to uh, to uh, get that hundred miles in. So the next morning we got up and went on into Cincinnati and and uh, got some a barge outfit to let us tie our boat up and take our motor off and store it. And uh, we went uptown. I knew what streetcar to get on and we took off to go out to my grandmother's and uh, we transferred to another streetcar to get there and who gets on it at the next stop but my mother. And uh, of course uh, uh, she didn't at first see me and I I said, hi, Mom, and she said she wouldn't want to know what we were doing down there anyway. Uh, my uncles thought it was such a big deal. They had the local papers when we left four days later to come back home. Uh, uh, they put a picture on the front page of the paper, and we got up the river that day about 40 miles because we're going against the current. Uh, rather than cook our meal on the river bank, we walked up into town to buy a hamburger, and and uh, the people in the restaurant were looking at the paper and looking at us, and we didn't know that this pub, this had been published, and uh, uh, so we became celebrities in a little small town of Augusta, Kentucky. So, uh, but we, to me, we had a good life. I, I. Uh, and I'm sure most of us could say the same thing. I can never realize we'd ever lived to have the nice homes and and the excess of of uh, everything of what we need. And I I've never been able to loosen up and spend money uh, excessively. I'm just as tight today as I was. Uh, any time in my life, and I can't tell you why. It's just built-in frugality, and, and of course we've tried to run our businesses that way because uh, we've been in high, highly competitive businesses and with high mortalities, and, and that's the way we've gone.